Luke chapter 2, and we're reading from verses 39 to 52. Verses 39 to 52. When they, that is Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to the own city of, of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went today's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now turn with me to Philippians, please. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be just reading together a few verses, verses 5 to 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder if you've ever lost something or someone and then found it in a very obvious place. You know, there are millions and millions of wrong places to look for something. And only one right place, isn't that right? Well, in today's account, Mary and Joseph lost their son. Very irresponsible. But Jesus, and they, they lost their son, Jesus. But when they found him, 
they were also dramatically reminded of who he was. Jesus' Jesus's claims as to who he was, even from this young age of 12, made him either, as C.S. Lewis has put it, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Mary and Joseph would have a glimpse of their Lord, starting to initiate the task that he had been sent to this earth for, but yet they wouldn't fully understand. Now before we get to our passage proper, we just need to put it in the right timeline here. Up to now we've looked at the birth of Jesus, we've looked at the shepherds and the declaration by the angels, we've looked at Jesus' circumcision at eight days old, we've seen Simon and Anna at the temple as Mary and Joseph bring him to be dedicated. And then insert into that, because Luke doesn't touch on it here, after they'd completed these events in the temple, this is the time when the wise men come along. So Jesus is already now 40, 40 plus days old. This is when the wise men come along as described in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. And this is when they have to flee from this, this land because of Herod who wants to kill all the babies. So if you get that in the timeline... And after this, when they return from Egypt, this is where our passage joins up again. Verses 39 in Luke. Alright, you got that in your heads? And it's kind of interesting. Luke doesn't touch on those events at all because it doesn't, it doesn't forward the story that he wants to bring about. Remember, he's speaking about Christ and Christ as the means of salvation. And he sees that as already described in the book of Matthew, he's aware of what Matthew's written and so he doesn't deem it necessary to actually include in his text. But it is there. Right, back to Galilee. In this passage specifically, it says, verse 39, they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And this is where Jesus now grows up. And you can just imagine them coming back into this little village of Nazareth. They'd kind of left under a cloud, hadn't they? Because at that stage they were betrothed, but they weren't yet fully married. And yet Mary was pregnant. And so they'd left and now they come back with this baby with them, baby Jesus. And one doesn't know if the, the stories of the Messiah had already been circulating around. And maybe they had reached Nazareth, but we're not told. We do know, however, that Nazareth as a village kind of rejected Jesus. We find out later in Matthew that they, they rejected this one who grew up amongst them. But Jesus grows up in this little village. He develops physically. He develops spiritually, mentally and socially. Verse 40 says he continued to grow. Now I want to stop just there and we're going to put a bit in brackets again. We're going to be looking just very shortly at this, at a theological term called incarnation. Jesus was incarnated. God became man. We've got to understand this as much as we can anyway. Incarnation, when Christ as the second person of the Trinity, that's one who is fully God, voluntarily and humbly, took upon himself full humanity and then lived a truly human life. 
And in doing so, he did not lose his divine nature in any way, but continued to be fully God. Does that blow your mind? Blows my mind. How can he be fully God and fully man? You see, the problem is, as human beings, we've only got a fully human brain to work with. We can't understand it. We've got to accept this in in faith. The Bible says it, God says it, and we have to accept it. We read that passage earlier in Philippians, where it describes where God became man. He took humanity on himself, voluntarily. And so we see that Jesus had a human mind, and yet he was God. I try to understand it this way. I was speaking to a friend of mine recently, and he was speaking about Volvo trucks. Volvo trucks, when you buy a Volvo truck, anyone here? No, no one can afford it. When you buy a Volvo truck, right, it comes with its full capacity, its engine capacity built into it. But you may pay a specific price so that you only get a part of that capacity. It's regulated for you. So if you pay, I don't know what they cost, 120,000, probably more, you pay a truck, you pay for a truck that is regulated at a specific power capacity. The full capacity is in there. If you pay more, they'll give you a code which you enter into your, your car, into your truck, and it will up the power. And say, so now you've got more power because you paid for it. Interesting what they can do these days. But you see, in a very small way, that's a weak kind of illustration, but in a way, God had his full power with him as a human being, but he chose to take on the human form, which was so much less than his godly power, his godly wisdom. And he voluntarily allowed himself to start growing in wisdom. It was all there, but it slowly suffused out of him. It slowly became more apparent in him as he grew up. I hope that kind of helps in some way to describe what incarnation is and how God could be fully human and yet fully God. We see that Jesus grew up socially in this little village of Nazareth. Matthew chapter 13, 55 tells us that he grew up with his father who was a carpenter and as Jewish Tradition would have it, the son would learn his father's trade. And so there we can see Jesus growing up and helping his dad after a while in the carpenter's shop. Matthew 13.55 also tells us that Mary and Joseph had other children. Jesus had brothers and sisters. And so Jesus had to learn about family life, about brothers and especially about sisters and having to share things. Extra-biblical material, the Apocrypha, tell us all kinds of stories about Christ's childhood. They even tell about childhood miracles. Jesus making clay pigeons and then releasing them to be free. But those aren't included in the canon of Scripture, and we are not to believe them. They are not verified by the Holy Spirit. He hasn't chosen to include them in this canon of Scripture. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus' first miracle was at the wedding at Cana when he turned water into wine. That's what scripture says. That's what we believe. So be careful of this extra biblical material. Some of it is historical and you can look at it, but some of it is not and we need to be really careful we don't take it on. 
Right, that's Galilee. Now, let's get to dramatics. The journey to Jerusalem, verses 41 to 50 in your text. Very interestingly, that this is the only incident given to us in Scripture of Jesus' childhood. The only one. And so we must look at what it's saying. So why did Joseph and Mary go up to Jerusalem every year? While the Torah told them to. Let's turn to that passage. If you go back with me to Exodus, Exodus chapter 23, this is where they got their command from. Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 to 17. God speaking to the nation of Israel. Verse 14. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also, and here's a third feast, the feast feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So that's where they got it from. They had to go up to Jerusalem every year for these feasts. And the law required all Jewish males to attend. However, most people living outside of Jerusalem, records tell us, only attended one feast. And that was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because it was very, very expensive to go up to Jerusalem and to stay in Jerusalem. And so the people kind of started taking shortcuts. And this is the one feast that they went to. And after a while, they, they had a day called Passover when they, when they celebrated what God had done during Egypt to get them out of the land of Egypt. And then straight after the one day Passover feast, they had the feast of unleavened bread, which lasted for seven days. And so for a period of eight days, they went up to Jerusalem and they had these feasts. And after a while, the people just referred to this eight-day period as the Passover. So we're going up for the Passover. They meant the Passover and unleavened bread. It became one kind of event. And so it was a highlight of the year for people. It was like going for your big family camp or that conference that you save up for. Mary wasn't required to go, but she went with her family. Why did they do that? We see this family always trying to keep God's laws, trying to teach their children God's ways, religiously so. They they honoured the God-appointed ordinances. In their time it was festivals. In our time it might be coming to church once a week to meet with the gathering of believers because God has told us to do that. We instill these values into our children. We try and teach them from an early age so that they get used to it. Because if we don't, they will teach that to their children. And they find that they will not teach their children to go to church or to keep to these things that God has asked us to do. And so we hear, we find this faithful couple trying to please the Lord by their faithfulness to Him. Teaching their children. And it required effort. It required stickability. It required money to go up with the whole family up to Jerusalem and it really did cost them time. But God had commanded it. It was for their spiritual good and so they obey and go. 
We also see, and this is all leading up to that dramatic event, okay, we also see that this is the twelfth Passover. Where do we get that from? The text says he was now twelve years old. Verse 42. Interesting age, 12 years old, when you're a Jewish boy. You see, at 12, the instruction of Jewish boys became more intensive because there was a very important year coming up the next year, 13, when they became a man, when they became officially a son of the commandment. In other words, they became a full member of the of the synagogue they called that the Mishnah. You became a Mishnah, a full member of the synagogue. You were allowed to publicly read from the Torah with a priest over your shoulder, your finger on God's word, pointing to where you were reading. That's what happened at age 13. And you became in society's eyes a man. Think of our 13-year-olds today. Interesting. But so, at the age of 12, they started preparing the Jewish boy for becoming 13. The modern custom of Bar Mitzvah only came 500 years after Christ. Right? It was slightly different in the Old Testament. There was an old rabbinical saying which said this. Listen carefully to this because we'll actually be quite wise to handle our 12-year-old boys like this. Let a man deal gently with his son till he comes to be 12 years old. And then the gloves come off. But from that time, let him, that is the man, descend with his boy into his way of living. That is, let him, the father, diligently keep his boy close to that way, close to that rule, and close to these acts by which he may get his living. So what are they saying? When a boy turns 12, right? He's been a child till then. When he turns 13, or at the, age of tw- at the end of the age of 12, when he gets there, you take your gloves off with him and start dealing with him in a much more regulated fashion. Because isn't that where a lot of the trouble starts? It's when those boys start growing up, those hormones start kicking in, the testosterone starts kicking in, and they start acting like men when they're still kids. And that's where they come up against and say, I won't. Now, the, the rabbis were saying, well, as fathers, you get alongside your boy, and if you start getting alongside your boy and teaching them the way of life so that they can go towards manhood, then maybe you'll have less trouble. I think we need to take heed of those words. However, when Jesus came to this Passover feast, he was 12, and he was coming to it as nearly a man. He was now ready for the training which would start with him as a God-man. Remember that always when we look at this passage. This one-day Passover then was an eight-day feast. And so here's the family going up for eight days to Jerusalem, bags packed. They have the Passover, they have the eight-day feast, and then it's time to go home again. And as it goes on holidays, you pack up the kids, you pack up everything, and then you start the long trek home. When are we going to get there, Mum? You know those ones. All right. And so here they are, but they didn't have cars. They would walk or go by donkey. And so it was a journey for them. And they would usually get together in the caravan of people. That's not a caravan behind the car, in case you thought that. Right? It's a caravan of people, usually going together because it's social and also for safety. Women and children used to usually go at the front and chat away amongst themselves. 
look after the kids. The men would usually come behind chatting about all kinds of serious things. If they had rugby, they talk about rugby. But they would have these segregated groups by choice going home. It was quite a social event. And at night they would stop at a predetermined place and they would camp out. The campfires would go on and they would all sit around the campfires talking. You can see it happening, right? And here comes Mary and Joseph. The caravan stops for the night after they'd been traveling for one full day. And the kids all start sitting around the fire getting their meals. Mary and Joseph start calling for Jesus. But no Jesus. They start searching around among all their relatives. Text says they asked around everyone. But no Jesus. Can you just feel that panic building up? Those of you who have ever lost kids before? I have. I wonder if they got any sleep that night. I remember, and this is on record now, okay. We lost Jenny once when she was 10. We were traveling from Tikawiti or home, and we stopped at Tikawiti for a comfort stop. She was sleeping in the back. She always reminds me of this. And um, we didn't realize that when we were out, she had sneaked out too. And she'd gone to the loo. We all got back in the car. We thought she was sleeping. Got back in the car. Twenty minutes later, we were passing around biscuits. Passed over to the back seat and no response. I tell you, I have just a glimpse of what Mary felt here. It is absolute terror. A ten-year-old girl left behind in Tikawiri. Nothing against (laughs) Tikawiri. But left behind in a town on her own. Well, we turned around. We had to go through. There were a bunch of road laborers, and I I think they just got out the way. They saw this guy's not going to go 30, and I know this is public, and they can follow me up on this, but we were not going to go the speed. We were going. And we got there much less than 20 minutes later. And there was Jenny just getting into a policeman's car. And there's people who didn't quite know the system yet in this country. We were terrified of it. But when we explained to the officer, he saw what had happened. And I think he just saw on our faces. But it was absolute terror. This must be what Mary felt. You know what can happen to a child en route or in Jerusalem? And here they couldn't find him. I guess they didn't sleep much that night. Early the next morning they would be back on the road. And remember they've got one day's travel to go back again. Imagine what that day must have been like for them. And then they get to Jerusalem. They've got to sleep another night. I use the sleep sleep as an operative term only. They didn't sleep. They were worrying. And then on the third day, they start searching for Jesus. And eventually, our text says, on the third day, they found him. And now they were quite in a state, I would say. But the question one asks, maybe in a way, now you know, in retrospect it's easier, why didn't they look in the temple in the first place? Sometimes when you know your child or someone in your family well, you know where to kind of look for them, don't you? If it was me that was lost, my wife would only have to look at the nearest airfield and there I would be looking at the planes. If it was my friend Dave Tastard, you only need to go to the nearest hunting and fishing and there you would find Dave. Alright? And so in a way, why didn't Mary and Joseph go to the temple? But I think there was... There's a pointer here to us why they might not have. Here they find Jesus sitting in the midst of the teachers. 
We'll get back to him. You see, Jewish tradition of learning said that it worked through question and answer. You ask the question, I will give you an answer. And in the process, we both learn. No question was to be left unanswered. And it soon became clear to these doctors of religion, these learned men sitting in the temple, that this boy, who they allowed to now sit among them, because that was also not generally allowed, a boy of that age, but they noticed through his questions and through his answers, he had a wisdom that really baffled them. This was not normal. The word used is they were amazed about him. Amazed to the point of mental imbalance is the actual term used. They couldn't believe these questions and the insight this boy had. Why was it? You see, this boy sitting in front of them was Jesus Christ. Who was he as God? He was the giver of the Torah. He was the giver of the word originally. And yet he was the son of the commandment. He was learning the human ways of doing things. And here he was discussing theology with the leaders, but they couldn't understand what he was saying. These things were too high for them. They should have known because they were leaders of the nation, but maybe it was because their personal walks with this God wasn't where it should be. Maybe they were so stuck in the rules and regulations which they were churning out for the people that they didn't actually look at the word itself and dig down into it and know what they should have known. And here Jesus teaches them. This 12-year-old. And so they sit there in amazement. Later on in Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, this is what is said there. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so here was this 12-year-old teaching these older men. Just another thing in brackets. You must excuse me, they're going to start calling me brackets yonker, like Paul. But it's very relevant here. You see, I was asking myself, why did this event happen at Passover, at this time of Passover, even though it was now over? You see, the Passover sacrifice had to be made at God's appointed place, which was the temple. So that, as Deuteronomy 16.6 says, so that his name would dwell in it. So the Passover feast had to be celebrated in God's way, at God's place, and then his name would dwell in the temple with his people. But here you see, with Jesus sitting in the temple with these learned men, here was not just the sacrifice in the form of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, but here was also God himself coming to dwell in my Father's house. And yet they didn't recognize him. And so Mary and Joseph coming to the temple, and there is Jesus sitting among these learned men, and they were astonished, says our text. And the literal translation there is, they were astonished to the point of loss of self-control. I can imagine that. They'd been searching for three days, and here is their son. And so, yes, here he is, relief. But also, here he is, sitting among the learned men. Is he all right? Is he in trouble? Are we in trouble? Because they were very strict about that. And then as Jewish decorum would have it, they wouldn't confront him right in front of these men. And I sometimes, when I first read this passage, you kind of think, man, he's quite cheeky. But you see, Jesus was without sin. Jewish decorum had it that they would pull their son aside, so when he saw his parents there, he would excuse himself 
and then come outside the room where they were sitting with the learned men, and that is where his mum let him have it. Why have you treated us like this? Can you imagine it? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Take words, note of those words, your father and I, because Jesus comes back to them. You see, Mary's response to Jesus reveals surprise, they found him, reproach, why have you done this to us, and anguish at the same time. And fair enough. And yet, Mary seems to have forgotten what Gabriel had told her about this child. She had forgotten, it seems, what Simeon had prophesied about this child. And maybe Mary and Joseph had got so used to Jesus watching him growing up these 12 years that they had forgotten who he really was, his real mission as the Son of God. Look at Jesus' response, really interesting. Verses 49. And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? You see, Jesus' answer to them brings his existence among them into perspective for them again. This is not cheek. He says, did you, and he uses the plural form there, speaking to Mary and Joseph respectfully, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? You see, it was his father's will that he start being a man. One, a son of the commandments. He had to be in the temple. This is the same Jesus who later had to be in the desert, tempted by Satan. It was the will of God for him. This was the same Jesus who later had to be in the garden of the Gethsemane, praying that God's will would be done despite his own anguish. It was his father's will. He had to be on the cross carrying the sin of the whole world on his shoulders. He had to be in that tomb so that he could be resurrected and defeat death forever so to, for all those who would believe. You see, Jesus was proclaiming to his mum and his dad, I must be about my father's business. My father and my father. You get the difference? I must be about my father's business. No disrespect to Joseph, but my heavenly father has put me on a mission and he is the one I now have to start obeying. The one who sent me. You see there? It's not cheek. The temple was not to be a place where religion happened. This was his father's house. The place God had appointed where he would be with his people and now here was Jesus, God's son, among the people too. God among men. But his parents couldn't understand that. And scripture states that. They didn't understand his statement to them. Very interestingly to see the way this passage ends. Verse 51 and 52. But they did not understand the statement which he had made. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. He went and he continued in subjection to him. The Son of God subjected himself to, to fallible, weak human parents. 
voluntarily did that. Yes, he knew they were weak. Yes, he knew that they didn't have the same understanding he did, and yet Jesus submitted himself to them. You see, he was showing us an example here of humility. This is the same humility that he would later call all his disciples to, his New Testament disciples, and you and I as his disciples as well. He calls us to this same humility. You see, he says, if we are true disciples of Jesus Christ, then we must be willing to be obedient to God, and if he says, humble yourself, then we are to do so. Now, I'm going to stop and speak to the very obvious group here. Who's that? Teenagers, again. You see, this passage really speaks to children and what they do with regards to their parents. Today our kids have so much technology and in a, in a way they've got so much power on their side. They've got so much knowledge on their side. And I guess there comes a point in their lives as part of the growing up process when they say, why should I listen to you as my parents? I know enough to help myself, they think. I know enough. I'm a human being. I can stand on my own. But you see, if you're a Christian here today, if you're a believing teenager, God says to you, you are to humble yourself to those authorities he has put over you. In your case, that'd be your parents. You see, if your security is in Jesus Christ, then your obedience must be to him too. You know who you are in Christ, and that's why you can humble yourself to your parents. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. And immediately I hear, but you don't understand. I understand things so much better than they do. I can get around life and Facebook so much better than my mum. Why must I listen to them? God says, humble yourself and obey. That's it. And I put the challenge out there to you teenagers. Humble yourself and obey. You see, with God there are no buts in humility. If you say you belong to Him, then obey. No buts. One day you will reach that age when you can go out on your own and then you will be surprised how much you didn't know and how much your parents knew. Until then, obey. Humble yourselves. And so as we come to the end of this passage, I want to leave four challenges with you this morning. And the first one is this. Persevere. Persevere in what? Persevere in those ordinances that God has brought about. You see, Mary and Joseph tried to teach their children to do what God wanted them to do. And so they went up every year to these feasts. As parents, are you setting the right example and the right attitudes for your children and your family? Are you teaching them that on a Sunday we go to church because God wants us to be with His people? Or do we show them that when something else comes up and it's a good excuse, then I can duck and dive and go off to those and disobey God in that instruction? Do we obey God and teach our children? Do we set those patterns early on in their lives so that they teach their children? You see, I've seen so often the opposite of that. 
Parents will take shortcuts and they'll teach their children to take shortcuts. And what do those children do when they get children? They teach their children the same thing. And there we have one generation passing on the wrong things to the next. Start with your, with yourself. Start with your generation and be obedient to the Lord. Second challenge to you from this passage. Are you and I about our father's business? If you're a believer here today, are you about your father's business? You see, Jesus knew what he had to do because God had given him instructions. Well, God has given us instructions too. Here they are. Are you about your father's business? We need to be reminded of this daily. You see, because I know myself, we start to get lazy in our Christian walks. We start to cut corners in our stand for what we know is right, especially when our friends and our colleagues challenge us. We start using this phrase, while other people are doing it. And so I can. Are you about your father's business? Are you being drawn back into the world? I want to challenge you this morning, like Jesus Christ, stay single-minded in your relationship to Jesus Christ. Stay single-minded to Jesus Christ in the goals that you set in your life. Stay single-minded to Him in your spiritual disciplines before Him. Prayer, fasting, and all those other disciplines that He puts before us to use so that we would be holy before Him. Stay single-minded in your obedience to Him. Sometimes we have to make choices which other people don't understand and which are different to choices other people might make because they don't have Christ as their reference. I want to challenge you this morning. Keep Christ as number one in all your decisions, in all your thinking, whatever you do. Go about your father's business. Thirdly, are you and I humble as we need to be humble? You see, Jesus knew who he was in God. He knew I am the Son of God. And therefore, he could humble himself and subject himself to his human parents. Those authority figures put over him by God. And if the Son of God could obey, how much more should we? Teenagers and adults. You see, as adults, we also have authority figures over us. Do we obey them as to the Lord? And then lastly, and this, if I said this is straight from this passage, I'd be pushing it. But I was really encouraged to think through this. As Jesus was in his Father's house, God with man, so he is in you and I working as well. He calls us his spiritual house. He is with us now in the New Testament. He is living with every single one of us. First Peter 2 verse 5 says that. And so therefore, I want to encourage you this morning. Allow Jesus Christ to dwell in you. And he will perfect you. He will carry it out in your life. And sometimes you will go through parts of your life too. Things that happen to you and you do not fully understand. As so many didn't understand Jesus. But know that he is in you. He is the one doing the work. He knows exactly what he wants to do in your life. We need to trust him in that. And so, yes, ask your questions. But in humility, go back to God and acknowledge, Lord, 
I don't understand the situation, but I know that you live in me and I will trust you. And then go forward in Christ. Be encouraged in that. You are not alone in your life. If you're a believer here today, Jesus is in you. God with man. And he will do what he has for your life until he perfects you. And therefore, I want to end with verse 52 for you this morning as well. As Jesus grew spiritually, as he increased in godly wisdom, if you have this attitude of putting Christ first in your life and subjecting yourself to his authority in your life, then you too will grow spiritually and you too will become strong and you too will increase in godly wisdom. Not worldly wisdom, in godly wisdom. And the grace of God will be upon you as well. If you are obedient to him. Can I leave that challenge with you this morning? I pray that as you go from this place, that you will not allow the words of God to fall to the ground, but that you will, like Mary, ponder them, think over them in this week, dig down into this passage. You'll probably find a lot more. There's only so much we can cover in a Sunday morning. But go and dig down, and importantly, don't let the words stay on that page. May they come into your soul. May they bring change about you as the Holy Spirit takes these words and this truth and makes them into spiritual value in you. Allow yourself to be changed by the Spirit this week. And then you will stand back in surprise and you will see how God will use you. Be encouraged in that, but persevere in that truth. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage where initially, when one looks at it, there seems to have been a bit of antagonism between mother and son, son and mother. But when we look at it, Lord, we see that these parents were being reminded who their son was, that he was indeed Lord, and that he had a mission before you, and he was to start on that mission. Lord, help us to have the same attitude of Je- of, as that of Jesus Christ, where we will be obedient to you first, whatever the cost. And Lord, we pray that as we are obedient to you, you will give us that spiritual wisdom that we need for survival every single day. You will give us that spiritual insight through your Spirit as to how we are to deal with people and situations be that at work or in our families. Lord, do your work in us. We know that you are God with man. You are with us, Lord. And you will not leave us until we see you again. What a promise. Lord, thank you for your example, Jesus Christ. Make us worthy followers of you. Amen.